Uh, last month, my daughter, Tabitha, was complaining about something that was physically bothering her. And she kept complaining and complaining and complaining. And of course, me as all-knowing dad attributed it all to, it's just in your head. It's just in your head. Later, I found out that it was actually something physically that was off about her that we were able to get treated. But of course, after I found that out, the constant conversation, I'm sitting there for the next 30 minutes thinking, man, I should have known. I should have known. Mr. All, know-it-all dad, I should have known that there was something physically off about her. At work, there was an incident last week where I made a mistake. I was far from perfect. But there was this one little fact, this tiny little fine print that I was not aware of, that honestly nobody was aware of, but I made that mistake. And of course, if I was talking to somebody else, I would be like, hey, there's no way you could have known that. But for me, for me, of course, I'm thinking, man, I should have caught that. I should have studied that before. At church, constantly, this is a conversation in my mind where something happens, something goes wrong, somebody's not doing well. I should have been able to prevent that. I should have reached out to that person. I should have saw that coming. And that's oftentimes a self-talk that comes up in my own mind that, you know, it's okay to correct myself, like, okay, that's something I could improve in, but oftentimes it's criticizing, it's beating myself up, I'm filled with guilt because I think I should have been able to prevent that. I should have known all those medical facts. I should have seen all of those hundreds of pages of fine print. I should have been able to save that person. I should be able to do many things at once and do them all well. And I'm constantly frustrated with myself and this low-level guilt that things don't go the way I expected or I'm not able to accomplish what I expected of myself. I couldn't prevent what I thought I should be able to prevent. I should have got it all done. I had 20 things on my to-do list today. I barely even got started. And whether you're in your 20s or your 30s or 40s, we live in a culture that is chaotic with endless expectations placed upon us. It's pretty much an endless, bottomless to-do list. Just thinking about those of you that have a family, you know, I, I have two amazing kids myself. I should be able to take care of them. I should be able to sit down and play games with them for hours. I, I mean, I see other families do it. I only have two kids. What about John and Kat who now have three? They make it look so easy. I should be able to do it as well. I should be more giving to my wife. I, I can always give more. Be more thoughtful. Plan a date night every once in a while. Be more attentive. Be more encouraging. There's also my parents and her parents and extended family. Shouldn't I check in more? Shouldn't we gather together more? Shouldn't I reach out more? How about at work? There's always more projects, more things that I can give myself to. If you're a realtor, there's always more houses to sell. The stay-at-home parent never gets to actually cleaning the house just because taking care of the baby took up their entire day. They should have been able to do more. For the counselor, maybe you should have asked better questions. For the teacher, maybe you could have been more prepared for your lessons. For the student, you could focus better. For the manager, I wish I could be more proactive instead of reactive all the time. There's always more. Let's add on church. Because church people have even more expectations and a bigger to-do list because they have church. 
They're very busy on weekends. I should be doing more for the prayer team. I see the prayer team in the back. I see offices struggling. I should be doing more. We obviously need to care about missions. I should be more involved in that. Pat keeps begging me to have to get more children's ministry teachers. That is clearly the priority. We should be doing more. And I should help there. I should write more notes, send more meals, visit more people, reach out. But I can't even remember names. And the list goes on and on. And what we expect of ourselves becomes this endless to-do list. You know, I have friends I haven't reached out to, my college friends I haven't talked to in a while, my high school friends. I should reach out to them. What about my body? I should be taking better care of my body, my mind. I need to be more focused on my studies and ambition and career. In my studies, I need to get ahead. And we do all these things, and we're expected to never lose composure or never come off frazzled. Endless legitimate demands, endless legitimate gospel demands. And at a certain point, whether from home, school, Church, family, community life, work life, career, kids, gospel activity, after school activities, with all the things that I should be able to do, I run into my limits. And what I think I should do, I can't. And when the brokenness of this world meets our human limitations, it breaks us apart. It breaks apart our emotions, our will, our mental health, our faith. And when we think we should be the brightest, the smartest, the quickest, the most able, the most competent, the most hardworking, we should be able to do all of these things, life teaches us that it's all an illusion. And as a youth pastor, I have these high school girls crying in front of me as that illusion is brought down. And we have this low-level guilt constantly in the background. We have, or you have, unlimited expectations, and maybe you're feeling the weight of that. What's the solution, the world says? Time management. Try harder. Be more efficient. Do better. Self-improvement. It's just a time management problem. If you could do it, I could do it. Just do more and do better. I need to be more efficient. Get better with calendar, with budgeting. We love talks on efficiency. Or just work harder. You need to have a mamba mentality. I need to be the guy that outworks everyone. I need to be more disciplined. I just need to be super mom. I see all these other moms on Instagram. They seem to be able to do it all. I need to take it to the next level. I need to be a little bit superhuman. Break out of your limitations. Impossible is nothing. And some people... Some people can get by. Some people succeed to some degree. They try to do everything. But in my experience, the presence of extreme busyness in their lives oftentimes points to a deeper problem. Their sinful ambition serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against their emptiness and meaninglessness. Busyness is just protection from silence. Others feel a constant sense of disappointment and failure. Instead of trying to do it all, they don't try to do anything. They dropped out of the race a while ago. We all constantly collide with our limits. And when you face your limits, oftentimes the message is work harder, squeeze tighter, be more efficient, hold on to control, get better, turn off TV, suck it up, and take it to the next level. And that's the spirit of this age. And frankly, I think that the church has bought into this, where we think it's a time management problem rather than a theological problem. 
The word of the pandemic, we all know what it is, right? What's the word that everyone always uses during the pandemic? Unprecedented. And so let me jump on that train, okay? Half of this is from a quote, and I just added some stuff at the end. With the unprecedented opportunities of our modern world come unprecedented expectations, which has led to unprecedented mental health problems because unrealistic expectations hurt ourselves. I'm here to argue that the Bible doesn't try to teach you to have a mamba mentality, a super mom mentality that'll break out of your limitations. In a culture that is screaming for more of everything, I want to argue that you're only human and we are called to embrace and even celebrate our God-given limitations. And nowadays, there's all this talk about what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? You look on New York Times, you look everywhere. What does it mean to be human? And so let's answer that question not by looking at what the world says, but looking at Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at the first Adam. And I want to start off, if you need to title this section, we'll call it a biblical anthropology. Okay? What does the Bible say about who we are? And instead of trying to be something we are not and cannot be, we should understand how God made us and that he made us very good. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, God, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay? Now, contemporary, sophisticated society chooses to deny the existence of a personal creator God, but biblical, biblical Christianity says that I have a creator, and we are creatures. That's where we start. I am a creature. And as creatures, we have finite, we are finite, we're not infinite, and to be finite means we're limited to a certain space, limited in time, limited in capability and capacity, our knowledge, our ability, our energy, our perspective, your perspective will always be limited. As creatures, God made us to be dependent on him and others. That was his divine design. We're dependent on, we have certain creaturely limits. We need sleep, we need rest, we need friendships, we need food, we need air. And as creatures, a humbling truth is, and this is, I think, something I'm like, I need to hear this every once in a while, that we are dust. God chose the most lowly and humble matter possible, dust from the ground, and infused it with his own breath. But apart from him, we're nothing but dust. Oftentimes, we argue, and there's nothing wrong with this, that we should be humble because we're sinners. And that's true. We are sinners. We fall short. But even before sin entered the world, even before Genesis 3, there was plenty of reason for us to be humble. And even when we're in heaven, when we are without sin, there will be plenty of reason for us to be humble. We are creatures. We are finite. We are limited. We are dust. We are made to be dependent on God and others. And that was very good. That dependence is part of God's good design, his divine design. All of this is to be embraced and even, I would argue, celebrated. Kelly Capich, an author, a seminary professor, in his book called You're Only Human, which I've obviously stolen the title and inspiration for this sermon from, he uses this phrase, quote, creaturely finitude, 
to describe God's design. That, that's a word I would never use, okay? So you know that's not for me. Creaturely finitude, and he describes our creaturely finitude is a good thing. We have limits that often, oftentimes we attribute to sin and we think it, and it makes us feel guilty. But did I sin when I went to sleep at 10 a.m.? I mean, 10 p.m. 10 a.m. <laughs> Maybe that is sin. <laughs> Was it sin when I went to sleep at 10 p.m. instead of studying all night? Is it because of my sin that I'm not as smart as my classmates or I can't study all night like others do, that I can't keep up in the same way? Certain limitations are not evil or sinful, but are built into each person. That's how God made it, and embracing these limits can actually free us rather than frustrate us. We oftentimes confuse creaturely finitude with sinfulness, and they're not the same thing. We are called, you are called to repent of our sins, to turn away from our sins. We, are, we f- should feel guilty when we do something that is morally wrong, that is wrong in the eyes of God, and we turn away from that to the Savior. That's Genesis 3, the fall, our sinfulness. But we also have certain limitations that we don't repent of, our creaturely finitude. That's how God made us. That makes us depend on him. We humbly delight and embrace this. We all fall short as sinners, and we should never deny our sinful shortcomings and repent of them in humility. We repent when Genesis 3, the fall, shows up in our hearts. We don't repent of the limits that Genesis 2 has put upon us. Strive to avoid laziness. That is sin. But don't feel guilty when you can't do everything. That's creation. And I find that in my circle, a Christian, conservative, reform type of circle, we're pretty well versed in topics of salvation, redemption, justification. We're sinners saved by grace, forgiven, and all stuff we need to talk about. But we rarely talk about creation. You're made in the image of God. Fearfully and wonderfully made by the potter who made you unique and with care, who did not make a mistake with you, who loves you for all your weirdness and your quirks and your uniqueness. That's Genesis 2. Now let's talk about Genesis 3 and how all of that goes wrong. Now we have this disordered relationship with our limitations and something we should actually feel guilty, guilty about shows up in Genesis 3. How did the certain tempt Adam and Eve? Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, I'll read it for us, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tr- fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what's he doing here? Before this, Adam and Eve were very content with their creaturely finitude. There's a simplicity to their relationship with God. Trust and obey God. Walk with God. Depend on God. And they stayed within the divine restrictions which God, as a father, lovingly gave. They weren't trying to break out. But Satan tempts them to no longer be satisfied with their creaturely finitude, but reject that. 
Imagine that you could be so much more. You should be more. You should be more. You should do more. Your creaturely finitude is a barrier to overcome, not a gift to be honored. Break out. You should be the master of all things. You should be like God. Don't just be human. Be God-like. And that's at the heart of every sin. That's the sin beneath every other sin. We want and try and assign to ourselves powers that God and God alone has. And we take him off the throne and we sit in his chair. And we try to be God. And after this, mankind's relationship with God was anything but simple. We moved from dependence to independence, from obedience to to disobedience. Man now pictures himself becoming more and more and more powerful as time passes. And again, we have this disordered relationship with our limitations. Being finite creatures made in the image of God is not enough for our society. We will reject God's love in order to gain power, and we're never satisfied. I'm not just a creature, I'm the creator, I'm in control. I'm invincible. I'm independent. I'm self-sufficient. I'm the master of my destiny. I decide my fate. There's no limitations on me. I decide right and wrong. I am the authority. I am God of my life. And of course, none of us would outwardly say we're God, but for the rest of this sermon, I want to argue that very quietly we all try to be. We all assign to ourselves powers we don't have and try to sit in God's chair, whether it's how we control or how much we think we know, how capable we think we are, how independent and self-sufficient I am, how needed and indispensable I am to the church. It shows up in all these different ways, and all of that is an illusion. And in many ways, I hope this sermon, you will humble yourself before the Lord humbles you. And for those of us who feel like we've been swimming underwater for so long, I hope this will be a breath of fresh air for you. So let's take the time to break apart some of these illusions. What are ways we try to be God? Okay? And I have six I am not statements. Okay? Six I am not statements that describe ways we try to be God and we're not. And I'll go through these pretty quickly. But the whole point of this is to say that God is God and you are not. And modern technology pushes the boundaries of human possibility and oftentimes tricks us or lulls us into thinking that we are more than we are. And we will do well to remember that we are not God. And I don't remember where I got this quote from, but it was from years ago. I didn't have it written down. But the quote is, the fastest way to be like Satan is to try to be God. The fastest way to be like God is to know you're not God. And so we're going to aim for that, to humble ourselves and know we're not God. And most of society is urging you, is convincing you to be aware of what you are, all that you have achieved, how far you have, com- how far you have come. And in contrast, I would argue Christian maturity has as its beginnings an awareness of all that you are not. And so six I am not statements, okay? The first one, and I'll tell them as we go. The first one, I am not all-powerful. I am not all-powerful. 
And God fearfully and wonderfully created us with limits, with power on our strength. And as creatures, this is just some of the most basic points, we need sleep. We need rest. We need inward renewal. You know the only person who doesn't need those things? God. He doesn't need that. And if we neglect these and we try to break through our limitations, we're claiming an affinity with God that no mortal should claim. God never sleeps. He doesn't need rest. He doesn't need inward renewal. God the Father is always working, sustaining the universe all-powerful. Psalm 121, verse 3 through 4 says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber, or uh, will neither slumber or sleep. And just think about this God never dozes off, He never loses focus, He's always watchful, He's always awake. He is God and we are not. And He gives you the gift of sleep as a creature. Psalm 127 verse 2 said, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The Bible never rebukes us for working hard for God, and plenty of times we see examples of sacrifice, sleepless nights, people risking their body. But here, the psalmist rebukes those who don't sleep because of anxious toil. And that means it's because they don't trust God will do the work. They don't trust that God will take care of them. They don't trust that God is sovereign. Sleeping well is an expression of trusting God. We sleep because we believe not everything rests upon your shoulders. And God made us to spend almost a third of our lives not doing anything except depending on him. Going to sleep is our way of saying, God, I trust you'll be okay without me. And the same goes for rest, Sabbath. I don't believe that there is a legal requirement for us, according to the law, the Old Testament law, to take the Sabbath, which was an Old Testament or Old Covenant religious obligation that's been fulfilled in Christ. But there is wisdom in the creation pattern that God set for us in working six days and resting one. For some of us, maybe we need to do better at working the six days. But for some of us, what we really need to do is rest. And nowadays, we, we, we brag, I'm so strong, I don't need a day off. I have, I have 50 days of PTO because I don't need that time. I'm fine. And we're foolish if we think we don't need days off. I am not all-powerful, and therefore, am I giving myself enough time for sleep? Am I taking regular days off? Am I self-aware about how God gives me inward renewal? And I think that's also part of the image of God. Create, there are creative ways, not just from the Word. The Word is the main place where we, we refresh our souls through the hearing of God's promises, but creative ways that we can renew our souls, whether it's through hiking, going to nature, reading a good book, playing sports, exercising, taking care of your body. Take, for me, I need to take long, long walks um, just to like, clear my head. Am I embracing my creaturely finitude? Your God-given limits are so real that you can't afford not to rest. Secondly, I am not in control. I am not in control. 
And let me say that, of course, there are things that we do control. We have a certain limited amount of control in our lives as part of the authority that God has given to us as his creatures to rule and subdue. I hope if I go to a doctor that he has trained very, very, very hard so that he has a certain level of control in the operating room. We need to control what we can control. But in our desire to break out of our limits, there comes a point where we honestly feel we should be able to control all circumstances. And we go into pretend to be God mode and we try to break out of our creaturely finitude and we believe all things should be in our control. The world should bend to my will. My will be done. I'm in charge of my life. And we're pretending to be God. Of course, none of us, again, go around saying that I'm God, but if anyone, if anyone, I should be able to control these things and rise above all these ordinary frustrations of life. Traffic jams shouldn't interrupt my journey. Canceled flights shouldn't delay me. Things shouldn't break in my house. The kids should obey my absolute authority. Such things shouldn't happen, not to someone like me. And then you have anger. What is a control freak? Okay, control freaks, raise your hand. Okay, raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. Control freaks. Okay, my hand's way up here. Okay, what is a control freak? other than an individual who will only be satisfied with God-like control. Speaking to parents, we oftentimes go into pretend-to-be-God mode. We assume this God-like authority and control of our kids' lives. We think it's the quality of our parenting that is going to determine their future. We try to control them. We try to fix all the problems in their lives. And instead of representing God, we replace Him. My kids' destiny, their future is in my hands. When Psalm 31.5 says, my times are in your hands, God. For control freaks, we should glory in that verse. Our lives are in his hands. We are not the master of our destiny. God is, and only God is in control. Third, I am not all-knowing. I studied uh, criminal law in undergrad, and for a while I wanted to be a lawyer. I never ended up pursuing that path. But let me just tell you something. I have an amazing inner lawyer in me. I am an amazing lawyer. I am amazing at justifying my position. I am amazing at rationalizing my sin. And when I go into my imaginary courtroom and I go into these imaginary conversations, I know it all. I know everything. And I am such a know-it-all, and my assumptions about that person are always correct. I know their heart. I know their background. I know why they're late. They're lazy. They're lazy. They're disrespectful. That's why they're late. And immediately I make judgments because I just know it all. It must be a character flaw. That's why they're not here. But I'm not all-knowing. There is so much in me that inner lawyer doesn't see, and at times we even presume to judge God's character because he's late. His timing doesn't match ours. God is all-knowing, all 
and God alone, even the smartest among us has been hardwired in our creaturely finitude to not know everything. Job 28, verse 20 through 21, in in his humility, he says, From where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all knowing, of all living, and concealed from the birds of the air. And as creatures, we always live in the absence of absolute knowledge. Paul says, we only see in part. It's like a foggy mirror. There are always things we do not know because we are not God. Our perspective is limited. You will never be able to fully understand that person's story, that background, what they've been through. You will never be able to fully read people's hearts. Oftentimes, I just trust my assumptions. That's sort of what counselors try to do. I just, there's something, I'm trying to read your heart. I'm trying to figure out the sin beneath the sin or your motives or what's going on beneath. And I would say at best, at best, I'm right 50% of the time. That's maybe a high estimation of myself. I know why they're late. I know why they're so unreliable. And I'm so quick to judge and very slow to forgive because I presume I am all-knowing. As creatures, you have to understand, we always have the perspective from the valley. From the valley, you could see certain things. You could see certain obstacles. You could see things going on. But we do not have the perspective from the cliff. God has a perspective from the cliff. He sees the whole picture. We only see in part. Only God has a heavenly perspective where he can see everything, and therefore that's why his judgments are always fair and accurate. We are not God. We are not all-knowing. Fourth, I am not invincible. I am not invincible. And again, we live in such a sophisticated environment. Medical technology lulls us into this era of invincibility, and we think we're better equipped for life than we actually are. And we all tend to believe we're going to live forever. But you are not invincible. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 and verse 6 through 7 says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach, when you'll say, I find no pleasure in them. Remember Him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground from, from, to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And it's so interesting to me how the preacher in Ecclesiastes actually singles out. He specifically calls out those in their youth. Don't let the excitement of being young cause you to forget about your creator because you think you're invincible. When we're young, we're, we, when we're young and healthy and can talk and walk and think and act and play sports, we start to think we're invincible. We're immortal that I will always be able to talk and walk and think and act, but I won't. Whether suddenly or gradually, in youth or old age, God will one day say, you return, man, to dust, and say, return, O children of man. Or I like how the NIV puts it, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. It is a good thing for our souls to remember that you and I 
our dust and our bodies will return to dust, and at no point in our lives are we far away from reverting to dust. Death is inevitable. And I've been to enough funerals of people who are younger than me to know that there are plenty of peaceful people that pass away before their time. It's good for us to face this. Funerals, if you've ever been to them, are good for the soul. They wake you up, don't they? Some of us have been in a hospital room where the heart monitor stops. Or you've stood at a funeral and you've seen the body laying in a casket. And Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. We think we're Superman and we're going to live forever. We spend our days as if we're going to live forever. We spend our time as if we'll always have time. We spend our time with our friends and families as if they're always going to be around. And we do not live as if our days are numbered. But we think they're infinite. Psalm 90 verse 10 says, Our days may come to 70 or 80, If our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Or a simpler way to put it is teach us to live as if our days are numbered, that we may be wise. We are creatures and we are not invincible, but rather death is inevitable because we're not God. Fifth, I am not independent. I am not independent. In our creaturely finitude, God made us to need one another. We are built to depend on God and others. Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. And I really wanted to actually call this section, I am needy. Because that just sounds so like, oh, none of us want to be needy. Okay? But I wanted to stay within the I am not. Okay? I am not independent or I am needy. We're very needy. I need friendships. I need to be good at relying on others. That is at the heart of being a creature. God is the only one that doesn't need friends because he has a community within himself. The Trinity for eternity has been in a self-giving, mutual love relationship for the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's we're made in the image of the triune God, the community God. He does not need friendships like us. And today, one of the underlying narratives of our society and of our world that you need to be independent, you need to be self-sufficient, and we're taught to think poorly of depending on others or interdependence. You're not God. You're not independent. You're not self-sufficient. It's not that, oh, it would be nice if I had more friends. No, that's how God built you. Your body needs food. Your soul needs friendships. And that means instead of trying to be God, we can actually ask for help for others when we need it from God and others, again, because we're not God. I'm going to make a risky statement here for my sisters. Okay, 
And I've ripped into the brothers enough from the pulpit, so I am going to try to be equal opportunity here, okay? I ripped into the guys before to step up as men, but let me just say, in my counseling, in my experience, this is just true of me, so don't email me afterwards saying I hate women or something like that, okay? But so often, you're so good at helping others, but you're so bad at asking for help. You're so good at carrying each other's burdens. But so often I see how burdened you are and the thought of you burdening someone else is just a nightmare to you. I need help. I need support. You don't have to be the savior. You don't have to be superwoman. What is that other than a denial of our creaturely finitude and an attempt to be self-sufficient God? I can give to plenty. I could give plenty, but I don't ever need help from others. Only God can say that. And today we see popular slogans like discover yourself and create, and create your true self. And these are yet more expressions of denying human limitations. We are not ourselves by ourselves. We do not self-generate our identity, but our identity de- develops out of an array of relationships. Who we are is grounded in whose we are. And it's not sinful to ask for help. And I learn more and more about how, I, how needy I am in my life. And then to take it even further, I need to commit myself to intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered relationships. Do you hear that? Intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered relationships where you are going to give up a lesser freedom, your independence, in order to gain greater freedoms, intimacy, closeness, relationship. That's how it is with anything great in life. You give up a lesser freedom in order to gain a greater freedom. You are not less free when you are dependent and in healthy relationships with others. I need true community, and I need to seek this out in my creaturely finitude. I need, as a creature, warning and encouragement, rebuke, protection, grace, and love. That is the wise design of the head of the body, Jesus Christ. And in my pride, do I think I'm smarter than him? Do I think I'm stronger than him? I'm so mature, I can live outside of the normal means of God's grace that he has given, the normal means of growth. I don't need that. Everyone else needs that, but not me. I'm independent. I'm self-sufficient. And I am not God. Six, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. And let me just say, if you want to accomplish great things, if you really want to do a lot for God, If you really want to be your full self, then you need the church. We all fall into what one author, Kevin DeYoung, he calls it the terror of more. The terror of more. A never-ending list of legitimate gospel needs. The Bible is a big book, and there's a lot for us that it says we should do. 
prayer, evangelism, missions, justice, the poor, the weak, almost any Christian, whatever is on your heart, almost any Christian can make the case that their things should be the main thing or at the top of the list. We should pray more, give more. We need more hospitality. We need more teaching. We need to be involved in human trafficking, issues of justice. What about feeding the poor? Inner city outreach, getting water to an impoverished village. Along with all the things that you're called to do here on Sunday, more ops, more prayer team, more hospitality, more food team. The needs are ending, never ending, and shouldn't we be doing more? Well-intentioned Christians hear these urgent calls to do more for the gospel, and oftentimes there's this low-level guilt that comes from not doing enough. And we're constantly disappointed in our lack of ability to be all-present, all to be omnicompetent, all-competent, to be able to do all these things at once. And we think it's do more or disobey. And honestly, it just becomes this huge obligation. But as part of the body of Christ, we are doing more, so much more. And our human limitations need to fit within an understanding of the importance of the local church. Today, I am caring for prisoners in jail. I am helping counsel families in their marriage. I am praying over the sick in the hospital. I am caring for the poor. I am doing so much more. How? Because I am part of the living body of Christ. And the Spirit has united us, and we are one. Romans 12.5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. When we wish we should be doing more for God, take joy in the thought that we are doing plenty as the body of Christ. And there is only one Savior in the world, and it is not you. He has appointed one Savior in the world, and He has not appointed you. John the Baptist says in John 3, 28, and we will be good to constantly confess this ourselves. I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Savior. And God knew when he brought you on his team that he's not signing some other God. He's not even signing someone who's like semi-divine. Psalm 103, 14 says, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We offer him a fragile, temporary, mortal, frail life that he has first given to us. That is all we have to offer, and God knows that. He's under no illusion of who he's getting on his team. But oftentimes in our self-absorption, we regard ourselves so highly, we overestimate our importance. If I don't do this, no one else will. Everything depends on me. Listen, you are unique, you are loved, your gifts are important, but you are not indispensable. Only Christ is. And let me just say, as a side note, you can't change people's hearts. We assign to ourselves a power that we do not have as creatures. And so often, I think, I'll save this person. I'll save this person. I could change their heart. Oh, you know, the guy I'm dating, I, I could save him. 
or my family member, if I just say the right things, I do all these things for them, they'll, they'll come to faith. Or there are times where there's a cry, or people like are going through difficult times, and as a pastor before, you know, I would try to be the Savior. I'm going to be the first one to jump up, be there. And it sounds strange, but I've learned over the years that there are times where it's wise even for me to wait when someone is struggling. It's not because I don't love them, but I've learned that that's the practical outworking of wisdom where I wait because I'm not their savior. I can't carry that burden. I want them to depend on the savior, not me. I am not the Christ. I am not all-powerful, I'm not all-knowing, I'm not in control, I'm not independent. But let me say one thing that I am, and this is my final point. I am human. And nowadays, there's so much talk on what it means to be human. We gotta live our full potential, it's all about self-actualization, and for the longest time, we use phrases like, to err is human. Or when I'm trying to like slither my way out of a sinful thing, we might say, nobody's perfect. I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm human. And oftentimes, we use our sin to define humanity, to define our humanity. But obviously, Jesus avoided sin, and he was still human. And yes, we are creatures, fallen creatures, born in sin, and without Christ's sacrifice, we will die in sin. But humanity, in its essence, was not sinful. God saw that it was very good. And biblical Christianity, if you want to understand what it means to be human, you have to first know Christ. Christ was not less of a human because he did not sin. He was more human. He fulfilled the original attention that God had for creation. He is the greater Adam who did what Adam couldn't do. In John 1, if you're not a believer, you have to understand, okay? John 1 says that the author of the story has written himself into the story and he became flesh. He became human. He took on creaturely finitude and he did not disdain that. He embraced it and all the creaturely restrictions that come with it. And he lived this perfect life, obeying the law that we could not do because we're sinful And then he died the perfect death on our behalf because we had a penalty to pay for our sin. And because he is infinite as God and finite as human, only he could be the bridge. And then he rose again after three days, proving that he is God and everything he said is true. And he humbled himself, and instead of taking the hold of the right that is his as God, he did not consider equality of God a thing to be grasped, but rather instead became a human who had to eat, breathe, drink, sleep, and rest, who was cut and who bled. And he lived a spirit-empowered life or a dependent life as a human being, born of a woman. That's what it means to truly be human. Going back to Genesis 2, that's what it means to meet your full potential. Not to be more busy, not to pursue more, 
To meet your full potential means to be like Christ and to be humble like Christ, to take on his character and therefore to have the image of God fully restored within you. As Christ sets us free from the chains of sin and death, he shows us how to be truly human by being like him. And the image of God becomes more and more clear as we leave behind the addictions and perversions and the sin and the ambitions that make us less human. We crucify any sense of independence. We crucify our huge pride. And we cry out to him as Savior. We repent and we trust him and we become more like him and we become more human. Let me put it another way. Let me finalize and summarize it with this. Here's how the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes sums it up for us. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And the Hebrew in this verse actually doesn't have the word duty. The, author, uh, the interpreters filled in that word. So literally it reads that fearing God and keeping his commandments is the whole of man. Not just our duty, it's our essence. God created us to know how small we are and how big he is, how great he is. And that's the best and fullest way to be human. And God has appointed a day of judgment that none of us will be able to avoid. Nothing you can do will change that. Nothing will be hidden from him. And how that day, how that appointment with God goes depends on whether or not you feared him, you trusted him, you loved him, you obeyed him. You're not a Christian because you think, I believe in this generic concept of God and I'm going to live a nice and kind and moral life. That is not what a Christian is. That's not what it means to remember your creator did we fear him? Do we trust Jesus? Do we repent of our sins? Do we crucify our independence, our self-sufficiency? Do we depend and throw ourselves upon his grace? That's what it means to remember him. And earlier I said he knows your frame. He remembers that we are dust. But for those who fear him and trust him, here's the whole context of that verse. Psalm 103, 13 through 14 says... As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. So often we forget who we are, where we have such a high and inflated view of ourselves. I'm like my five-year-old daughter who, who I think I could, who she thinks she could just pick up that 50-pound microwave out of my car. But God is under no such illusion. He knows my frame. He knows my shortcomings. He knows where I fall short. And yet, how does he see you? Does he frown upon you? Is he constantly looking at you with disgust? 
No, like the father in Luke 15, 20, it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's how your father sees you. He does not love you because of all that you do for him. Just like I don't love my daughter because she learns how to ride a bike or can do her homework. He loves you because you are his son and daughter and he has soft eyes towards your weaknesses. That's how our Father sees those who fear and trust and love Him. Make this your declaration. And I wrote something out. It's almost like a little commitment, okay? So I can make it real easy for you, okay? And I'm going to read this, and I, I hope it'll be your prayer along with me. Okay? Make this your commitment as you embrace your creaturely finitude. I am and will never be this side of the resurrection more than a creature of dust. I will rest content in my creaturely finitude and allow it to foster freedom, joy, and community. I will use the means God has given me to keep going in this life while I can. I will allow myself sleep. I will trust him enough to take a day off. Rather than be a proud, independent loner, I will invest in friendships that are not efficient but slow-growing. I will serve the Lord zealously with all the energy he works within me, but not with anxious toil or selfish ambition. I will let go of control and like a child trusting God's sovereignty. I'll give others the benefit of the doubt because I cannot read hearts and I am more like them than unlike them. I am too weak to not ask for help. I am too finite to think I can go it alone. I am not self-sufficient. I am dependent. I will no longer sit in God's chair. I am not the Savior. He is the Savior. I am not God. He is God. Savior Church, if that's your declaration, say amen. Let's pray. Like I said, I hope that for some of us this will be a breath of fresh air. For others, that we would humble ourselves before God humbles us that we would repent of our desires to try to be God. And we would rest in the fact that he is God. A God that Galatians 2 says, he loved me and gave himself for me. We celebrate our creaturely infinitude and we repent of our sin. And now we turn to our Savior, remember our Creator, how He died. Our Creator died for us. I'll give you a moment just to pray and remember your Creator. Father, when you see us in our weakness, or oftentimes we feel overwhelmed. We can't handle what life throws at us, and we just can't.
And you may put us through those situations, but in those moments, I pray that your strength and your grace would be sufficient for us. We do not come to you powerful and strong and independent and self-sufficient. But Lord, we need you. We want to trust in you with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. We want to acknowledge you in all of, your, all of our ways. A life that is fully dependent upon you. Jesus, you said that apart from you, we can do nothing. We could bear no fruit. And so, God, we want to turn away from our pride. We want to turn away from our independence. And we want to lean upon you. Would you give us freedom in Christ? You say that we are not enough, and that is good news. You have done it all. Would we take hold of that freedom? Take hold of the rest that is in Christ. Take hold of the life and satisfaction and the fulfillment that comes with obeying you and fearing you to be like children and not think so highly of ourselves, but in all things know we are dependent upon you. And so help us, help us. We are weak in faith. Help us in our unbelief to remember that Jesus, you are the one that holds all things together. You are supreme. You are in control. You are sufficient. Therefore, we do not need to be. And so we thank you for Christ taking upon our humanity. Thank you for showing us the way and being the way. We just want to say we love you. We trust you. We are not God. You are God. And in response, we want to bless the Lord with our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.